and with a measuring line in his hand. Measuring line, what's that for? Well, that's to lay out future construction site, right? That's what you have to think in terms of the tape measure. You know. I asked, where are you going? This man with a measuring line, probably the angel messenger, this angel interpreter always, he sees in this vision, the angel interpreter. Where are you going? He answered me, to measure Jerusalem, to find out how wide and how long it is. Well, that seems strange, doesn't it? There was no Jerusalem. Well, there was, there was a location which was identified with Jerusalem, but this was a city which was in ruins. Uh, they didn't even have permission to rebuild the city yet. And only the simplest beginnings of the reconstruction of the temple, what we call the, the footings or the foundation. And yet he sees someone measuring Jerusalem in this vision to see how wide and how long it is. Then the angel who was speaking to me left, and another angel came to meet him and said to him, Run, tell that young man, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of men and livestock in it. And I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. That's the heart of the vision. And we're going to spend most of the time of the next oh, 30 minutes, 20, 30 minutes, looking at uh, that kernel of the larger revelational context. But let's move on and look at the chapter first and then return to this, uh, this uh, statement, this revealed will. Uh, verse 6, Come, come, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have scattered you to the four winds of heaven, declares the Lord. That's a, that's a call for the exiles to return, to resettle Jerusalem. Come from the land of the north, which was, of course, north and somewhat east, the land which nowadays we know as Iraq, primarily Iraq, maybe as far as Iran, um, you know, the place where so much history has taken place and uh, the focus of the attention of the world early in this year was uh, present. Come back now. You were scattered, but now return to Jerusalem. Verse 7, Come, O Zion, escape you who live in the daughter of Babylon. Uh, citizens were often referred to as daughters of the capital city, which uh, was the center of their nation. So you have the daughter of Zion, and now the daughter of Babylon, uh, somewhat contrasted. So it's come, O Zion, escape you who live in the daughter of Babylon. You live among the peoples in that pagan land, but now the call is to escape. For this is what the Lord Almighty says. After he has honored me and has sent me against the nations that have plundered you, for whoever touches you touches the apple of his eye, I will surely raise my hand against them so that their slaves will plunder them. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me. The first few uh, statements in, uh, in, that, in that declaration of the Lord Almighty uh, has been a troubling little phrase to translate. Uh, some of the older translations said, after the glory. Well, what's after the glory? What does that mean? And here it says, after he has honored me. Um, the terminology there uh, suggests that Zechariah has a sense of uh, honor to be the carrier of the message that God brings to his people. And so after the glory, the old uh, King James uh, translation, suggests that this honor bestowed upon Zechariah uh, is, the, is the motivation for him to carry the message that the angel of the Lord brings to him. <clears throat> That's one possibility. Uh, another, after he has honored me, uh, may also be understood, it's really only two words in Hebrew, uh, to intensify the sense of responsibility. 
that rests upon uh, Zechariah to, to carry this message. So uh, this sense of, of responsibility sends me in order to bring a message of uh, revival and renewal. But it is a very, very uh, difficult little piece of Hebrew in or to uh, translate. So here it says, after he has honored me, uh, which obviously the NIV translators are seeing this as the glory or the respect or the special privilege that Zechariah has received and has sent me against the nations that have plundered you. Uh, there, of course, the, uh, uh, he, he didn't send Zechariah so much on a physical journey as he has sending the message he proclaims against the nations, uh, warning the nations of their, well, as we read in the earlier chapter, who had gone too far to carry the calamity that the Israelites endured in captivity further than was, uh, per, was acceptable to the Lord in, in the Lord's judgment. Uh, against the nations that have plundered you, and then this little phrase, forever touches you, touches the apple of his eye. You know, that's a, a prior reference uh, uh, in the scripture to God's uh, precious evaluation of his relationship with the covenant community. The apple of his eye, that sensitive center of one's eye. Then I will raise my hand against them so that their slaves will plunder them. And that, of course, is what uh, finally did happen. Um, if you review that history, uh, I'm, I've discovered in the break that we have some people who have really made an in-depth study of that history, and I have tried to uh, give you sort of a broad framework, and uh, as a consequence, some of, the, some of the details we haven't worked out. For instance, someone reminded me, and very rightly, that there's more than one Darius early on in these. There's a Darius involved in the uh, original invasion of the Chaldean Empire, and that's, that's very true. And um, Cyrus is identified with the Persians early on, and that's also true. Uh, it's awfully difficult because there are so, so many repeated names. Even Zechariah always has to say the son of Berechiah, the son of Idu, because there are other Zechariahs, and this is his way of uh, distinguishing. And uh, there, there are some complexities if you look in Daniel and then look here to bring these all together. For one thing, uh, just in passing, uh, Daniel's prophecy is probably not chronological. Uh, that, it, that is, it doesn't follow the time. Uh, what occurs first is not necessarily re reported first in Daniel. And that's the case in many other parts of the Bible. That's not so terribly important what the actual one, two, three origin is. Uh, and, uh, and then if we compare it with secular history, in, Persian, in the Persian annals, Darius I is the one referred to in the Bible who began in 522. But there was an earlier Darius, but apparently in the Persian uh, interpretation of things, he wasn't important enough to call Darius I. And there's a Darius II, too, that's not even recorded in the Bible at all in, in the Persian annals, who happened to be uh, defeated by his half-brother, um, Artaxerxes I. There's an interesting Greek account in that score. So I've discovered that uh, some, there are some very uh, 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 knowledgeable uh, historians among us. Uh, I'm always a little reluctant. Well, there, you always have this problem, of course, uh, using illustrations and also setting, setting the general framework because you wonder how detailed and how much detail is necessary. I've tried to present the uh, historical setting so that we can get a sense of how the Lord is revealing his will in that, in that actual setting. But we always run into problems like that, especially in illustrations. Uh, take the illustration from uh, uh, last night, for instance, uh, uh, we need roots or else we die. Well, one could say, well, hey, wait, the Holy Spirit comes from above. We don't get that from the roots. And yet that's, that's a very good illustration, but our illustrations always break down. Um, I, and also in response to that, that earlier question, uh, being too dogmatic about identifying this particular angel of the Lord with a theophany, uh, I've learned to, uh, not to be so terribly dogmatic unless, 
the, the, there's biblical uh, sources for it. I got burned once, for instance, when I was trying to uh, teach a lesson to a ladies' group uh, about um, uh, Judah, you know, uh, Genesis 38, that, uh, that uh, interesting account. And uh, you remember Judah's daughter-in-law, Tamar, married the oldest son, he died, married the second son, he died, and then, uh, according to the law, she was to get the third eligible bachelor, but he was only about 15, he wasn't old enough, so Judah sends her home and says, go live with the folks, and when Sheila, I think Sheila is his name, is old enough, then I'll let you know. And I was trying to make this, you know, dramatic, trying to get them to feel how, how it was for Tamar to sit home with the folks now. After all, she'd been married twice and been widowed twice. She's sitting home with the folks waiting for a message. And so I tried to make it a little dramatic. I said, every day she'd go out to the mailbox, see if there was a letter from, from you know, and they're never there. So she finally took, took action to her own hands and then she played the harlot, you know, and he, she, well, you know, the rest of the story. Well, afterward, a lady came up to me. She said, oh, she said, I, I feel sorry for you. And I said, why? Well, she said in the book of Revelation, it says, to him who adds anything to this book, to him shall be added the plagues that are written therein. And she said, you got that coming. I said, what did I do? And I said, what did I do? <laughs> and she said, they didn't have mailboxes back then. <laughs> So, well, just a little aside. So, uh, we want to be as specific as possible, but uh, uh, I realize that uh, some of you have made a, a more in-depth study, and my uh, brief references to the historical background may, may and do fall short in, in some of these matters. And uh, sometimes it's not that easy to uh, pull everything together in the historical setting that it ought to be. But um, here, um, after he has honored me and sent me against the nations, I, I'm taking that to mean to make this prophetic declaration against the nations who have plundered uh, you, the covenant community, because you, after all, are God's precious possession. It's like pricking God in the eye uh, painfully when he sees his covenant people suffer beyond the measure that he, he even intended. And then he says, I will raise up my hand against them. Their slaves will plunder, plunder them. Well, uh, this all started, this little, little interjection I had, because if you review this history, it was really the peoples that didn't seem to amount to much that eventually gained the ascendancy. As a matter of fact, uh, the Assyrians looked down on the Chaldeans. The Assyrians were, a, were a, a vicious, powerful, but uncultured people. And they looked down on these Chaldeans who were a little more cultured, but he, they considered the Assyrians considered the Chaldeans kind of softies, you know. Um, I'm told that uh, some of the... Uh, early uh, Japanese warlords who were encouraging the emperor to allow them to attack America and go to war. One of the points they made was America was a bunch of softies. And uh, one blow, Pearl Harbor, and they'd cower in the corner and say, oh, uh, forgive us, uh, we'll withdraw to a certain line of the Pacific, you can have the rest. They really thought that America would be you're too soft to respond. Well, uh, that was something of the Assyrian attitude to, toward the Chaldeans. And then the Chaldeans looked upon the Medes and the Persians as these, these boors from the mountains. And they sort of looked down on them. And they end up in the ascendancy. And of course, the Persians finally uh, were subjected to a people that they didn't regard. And so those which were once enslaved, which were once subject to power, rise up. And that's what happened in God's providence too. So their slaves will plunder them. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me. Verse 10, shout and be glad. Now this is what Zion's response should be. The daughter of Babylon, 
should release the captive and will finally suffer the consequences of her rebellion against the Lord and his, against his anointed people. Now, the daughter of Zion, the covenant community's response, shout and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for I'm coming and I will live among you. This anticipates, of course, the Lord's presence symbolized in the Holy of Holies in the restored temple. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. Now see, this starts looking ahead. It starts looking ahead. Because, after all, we can't really understand this except in the light of subsequent uh, revelation, especially in the light of the coming of Jesus, where out of Zion shall go forth the gospel to the ends of the earth, and many nations shall be born again in Zion. That's terminology from way back in the Psalms, huh? Uh, nations born again in Zion. Well, that's because, of course, Zion is the center of God's redeeming work. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. I will live among you, and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. The Lord will inherit Judah, inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. It appeared, you know, back 70 years before, or roughly 70 years before, that God had rejected Jerusalem. Now the promise is he will again choose Jerusalem. He will be his chosen people. The word chosen, called, and elected are all synonyms. Uh, they all mean very much the same thing. So he elects. It's God's electing grace, God's choice. Unfortunately, uh, Jerusalem thought that God elected them so that they would be God's pamper, pampered favorites who could act any way they pleased. But that's not what election means in the Bible or choosing or called. Um, Johannes... Uh, what is his name? Blau. He was the uh, secretary of the Foreign Mission Board for the Kerken in the Netherlands back in the 60s. Has written a book called The Missionary Nature of the Church. He's an Old he was an Old Testament scholar. And so he deals only with the Old Testament. And he traces these references to the election, choosing, and called in relationship to, to the people of, of the Old Testament and claims, rightly I think, that in every instance when God elects his people, when he chooses his people, when he calls them, he calls them for a purpose, for a job to do. He never calls them to be his pampered favors to shower his blessings upon them with no responsibility from them. And uh, says that if they won't do that for which they were called or chosen or elected, then God withdraws his choice and election, at least for a period. And that seems to be historically what's happened. God sort of withdrew his, uh, his call to Jerusalem, disciplines them, and now he recalls them to be, of course, the agents of his saving activity in the world especially to exist as a people through whom the Messiah would come. That was their purpose for existence, and that's what should, give, should have given meaning to their whole, whole existence. So he will again choose Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is called to a purpose then for which it's chosen. Be still before the Lord, all mankind, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. That's a call to, uh, for the rest of the world to be very alert to what God is about to do. Now let's go back to the, what we've called the kernel of this, uh, this prophecy, this vision. And that's back in uh, verse uh, 4 and 5. Run, tell that young man, and here it is, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of men and livestock in it. And I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. Now within that kernel of the larger 
prophetic word. We have three things said about Jerusalem's future glory. First of all, it'll be a city without walls. Secondly, we have a reason for that glory because I, the Lord, will be a wall of fire around it. And thirdly, we are told the source of that glory. I will be the glory or its glory within. I'd like to look at those uh, three factors, the rest of this, so, uh, for this, this chapter 2, and then reserve the last half hour for chapter 3. Uh, first of all, let's look at the prophecy of that glory. Uh, what does it mean? What, what can it possibly mean? What, the, what does the Lord mean through Jer- uh, Zechariah the prophet that Jerusalem will be a city without walls? Now, we've been saying again and again the walls of the city of Jerusalem were finally uh, uh, reconstructed later under Nehemiah and Ezra, about 75 years after the temple. But remember, this is a vision, and we have to take the symbols and ask them in the light of the scripture, what do they mean? Well, walls in ancient worlds, in the ancient world, were primarily for defense. They were very costly to build. It took a great deal of manpower and a lot of the resources, but they were very necessary because they were for defense, uh, primarily. The enemy would come, and the walls were the protection. My, even Jerusalem could stand up against the mighty Assyrian army for, uh, for a couple of years and uh, against the Roman army for a few years, against Nebuchadnezzar's army for several years because they had these thick, heavy walls so wide and big that people could live and have homes within them and above them uh, in the wall themselves. Um, at night, the gates were closed so that raiding bands could not uh, plunder, plunder the city. And the people had to uh, crowd together within the city. Now, cities were, by and large, not very big. Jerusalem was probably the largest. But when you read about cities in the Bible, you have to realize they're really just little towns. Do you know that Jericho, the city of Jericho that Joshua conquered, covered only nine acres? That's the same size as the campus of Westminster Seminary in Escondido. Now, that's not very big. Um, Some of the others, En Gedi, for instance, built by Solomon, was only 11 acres. Now, Jerusalem was, by contrast, a really big city, but uh, it only had about 2,400 population, likely, uh, at the time of the final collapse before the, before the uh, that is, people who actually lived there. But, remember, people farmed the lands all around, and so at night they came away and lived for protection in the city because there were always raiding bands and the threat of... Uh, of people coming on there. Now, what this prophecy says then is that the vision anticipates no longer need protect when Jerusalem will no longer need protecting walls against attack from the enemy. Um, the prophet envisions an era in which the enemy will no longer be a threat. No, no need for bulwarks of, uh, of concrete and stone. Well, they didn't use concrete, they used, but they used a form of mortar and very, very, very large stones, didn't they? Uh, for physical Jerusalem, this never really happened, did it? Not for physical Jerusalem, but we have to see beyond that, uh, and we'll explain that a little bit later. Uh, now, secondly, uh, though walls were necessary for defense, The one big disadvantage of walls in a city was that it prevented growth. Have you ever wondered why Joshua conquered 31 cities? Um, I mean, why didn't they have just a few big cities so that they could build strong defenses against Joshua? Well, the reason is it it took so much to build the walls around the city 
that they would never think of breaking out the wall to expand the city. No, it was easier to start another city somewhere else. And so all these small cities like Jericho and Ai and the like, one after another, Joshua uh, conquered. Now, had they all pooled their resources into one massive city like Nineveh, there were a few big cities in the ancient world. Nineveh, during Jonah's time, was probably 600,000 people. Now, that was a very big city in, in a world where the population of the whole world was less than the population of the United States right now. It's uh, rather estimated that the population of the whole world at the birth of Jesus was 150 million. And we have 245 million in the United States alone now. So when you think of a city like Nineveh, that was a massive city. Babylon was a massive city. But uh, those were exceptions. Those were really exceptions. Walls prevented growth. So here this prophecy anticipates a day when Jerusalem's growth would not be hampered by restraining walls. And now you're beginning to see that this prophecy, uh, you know, it intended for physical Jerusalem, but finally realized in what we sometimes call spiritual Jerusalem. You see, the ideal that Jerusalem should be the spiritual capital of the world was never lost by the faithful in the Old Testament. Think of the Psalms where it says, nations born again in Zion. I mentioned that a little bit earlier. Or we sometimes sing, sing the ends of all the earth shall hear and turn unto the Lord in, in fear. The ends of all the earth shall hear and turn unto the Lord in fear. Heathen lands and hostile peoples soon shall come the Lord to know. You see, this prophecy uh, sees Jerusalem as the ideal city of God for the nations. Capital of the world. No heathen threatening from the outside. No need for walls to hinder growth from within. Now that never happened for physical Jerusalem. Uh, Israel chose, Jerusalem chose to hoard what it should have shared. And it became isolated and then insulated. Uh, and instead of influencing the nations, Jerusalem constantly was influenced by the nations. But uh, this prophecy stands. And it's the word of the Lord which cannot fail. So what was intended for the Jerusalem that was being rebuilt here was in God's providence fulfilled in some future years. Approximately 500 years, I only gave this as a rule of thumb, you know, approximately 500 years later, at the same site, not the same temple building, Zerubbabel's temple is the second temple. Solomon's temple, number one, destroyed in 587. Zerubbabel's temple is the one that's being rebuilt here, referred to as Zerubbabel's temple. Come back tomorrow and we'll find out why it's called Zerubbabel's temple. But we can't talk about Zerubbabel today. Although it's nice to, to pronounce that word, isn't it? Zerubbabel. <laughs> Number two, then in 42 AD, excuse me, 42 BC, Herod tore down Zerubbabel's modest uh, replacement for the glorious Solomon temple and then built a temple very much like Solomon's and almost as, uh, as elaborate as Solomon's. That's 42 BC. 40, well, 38 years before our Lord Jesus was born. And that's the temple where Jesus uh, dialogued with the uh, THDs, <laughs> with the seminary profs <laughs> and the preachers. And that's the temple where Jesus was brought at birth for the prophetess and the prophet Anna and uh, what's the other one? Simeon. Simeon. Uh, so this, it's not this, but it was the same site, the same uh, location, the same location where 500 years later uh, Jesus would literally weep and say, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those sent unto her. How often I would have gathered your 
people together like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you wouldn't. Jesus wanted this glorious promise that Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that was being reconstructed here to be the spiritual capital of the world, but for physical Jerusalem, that never occurred. However, this city which rejected the Son of God and therefore failed to know the glories of the promise of the purpose for which God intended her, this city which lost its glory, this city that had to be destroyed by the Roman army and have blood running in its streets, and in the, lay, in the, the last few days of the, the siege of the Roman army in 70 A.D., the, the few remaining people, some of whom ate their own children to stay alive, crowded into the temple and they said, surely the Lord will intervene on our behalf because we, we stand in his temple. No, the Roman army came in and simply slaughtered them and the, their, their blood just dripped on the temple walls and finally the whole place was destroyed, set afire, burned. A dismal end. But the prophecy was still fulfilled because it's God's word. Not for physical Jerusalem, the one Zechariah is busy uh, in encouraging the people. But for spiritual Jerusalem, there is a conquering because the Son of God, who taught in Jerusalem and surroundings from Galilee, Samaria, and Judea south for three years, toward the close of his ministry, we read, he set his face steadfastly toward Jerusalem. And it was there in Jerusalem, the night in which he was betrayed, he established Holy Communion. And the next day, he was tried early in the morning and then crucified after being marched down the crooked streets of that same city of Jerusalem. But from a hill outside the walls of that city, the everlasting gospel of salvation has spread now throughout the whole world and the walls of Jerusalem did not hinder it. And Jerusalem, spiritual Jerusalem, the place where the eternal redemption for God's people for all ages was earned, now has enlarged so that people of all nations find their citizenship there. So that's why this prophecy is fulfilled. Jerusalem did finally become a city without walls to hinder its expansion because the everlasting gospel flowed from Calvary throughout the world. And we here on the other side of the globe, as a matter of fact, we are the ends of the earth. We are the extent. You can't get much further away. Well, a little because we're in the northern hemisphere and you can get to the southern hemisphere on the other side of the world. But we are like the ends of the earth so Jerusalem, because of God's grace in Christ from Calvary, has now been enlarged without hindering walls to embrace all the nations of the world. And that's why this prophecy really has, has been fulfilled. But what was the reason for that glory? Well, it says here, I, speak. God is speaking, will be a wall of fire around it. Uh, fire. Fire can be a blessing or a curse. Uh, not so much in our uh, climate here, but oh my, when we lived in the North Country, uh, that warm fire in the furnace uh, made life possible in, the, in Palos Heights, Illinois, where we lived for 14 years. Uh, but it was a controlled fire, wasn't it? It was a fire controlled in the furnace and its warmth was spread throughout the home. And it, it represented comfort. It represented life. It represented uh, uh, the unity of a family in the warmth of the, uh, of the home. But, if one of the children were to play with matches and start a fire in the uh, bathroom and it begins to spread and finally consumes the whole house, well then... Fire in the house is a curse and not a blessing, you see. Well, that's what happened to Israel. Uh, God was a wall of fire 
protection, defense, preservation, literally true. When Jerusalem was faithful to Jehovah, God was a ring of fire round about and provided protection and warmth and the intimacy of the covenant unity that they should have, uh, should have experienced. When Jerusalem was faithful to the Lord, it was impregnable. Under David, there were several threats to David, especially the, the uh, Philistines. Jerusalem never fell. God was a ring of fire around her. At the time of Hezekiah, that army of Assyria was gathered around Jerusalem. And he prayed, and the Lord sent the angel of death, the ring of fire, protected them. Um, but when Israel forsook her God, then the fire departed and the enemies plundered and eventually they were burned, literally, weren't they? The fire within literally burned. Nebuchadnezzar's army burned the whole town and the Roman army burned Jerusalem in 70 A.D. But even when Jerusalem forsook her God, God was always the ring of fire around the remnant. He was going to make sure some survived, the faithful ones because he had promised to redeem the world through a, a Messiah, his, his, his Redeemer Son. And so that protecting ring of fire was always present. And uh, that's true also of this expanded Jerusalem of which we spoke, which is really the church of Jesus Christ of all ages and all peoples. As long as it's faithful to the truth, God is a ring of fire around her. And we don't have to worry about a, a minority complex. We don't have to feel embarrassed in this world because God is the ring of fire. And if you trace the history of the church, for which we don't have any time, I'm getting more and more conscious of that, um, uh, when the church was faithful in the early Christian church days against this, this, the, the hordes of pagan Rome, the Lord protected it. And during the Reformation, and at many points in, in individual uh, experiences of, of the various church traditions, the Lord protected the church so long as it was faithful. Really, when you consider the weakness and the errors and the uh, narrowness and the infighting that occurs within the church, it's, it's a miracle of God's grace that he does preserve the church against enemies from without and the conflicts from within. But the Lord has this promise. And, and what's true of the church is true of individuals too. And I think we may press that, that this far. If we keep near to Jesus, we have this wall of fire around us. And that's why he said, Be anxious in nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known, and the peace of God will be yours. Why? Because the ring of fire is always there. Always there. We have to keep within the ring, the wall of fire around us, of course, which means we have to walk with God. And then the fires, the destructive fires, will never come near. And then finally, uh, the source of that glory, the source of that glory. I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. It's good to have a wall around you, a defense. But it's even greater to have the glory within. Jerusalem of Zechariah's day was offered God's glory in her midst. They were rebuilding the temple and in the Holy of Holies above the mercy seat be between the cherubim, the presence of God would constantly be symbolized that special presence. And God promised not to be a glory, but the, the, the ultimate glory. But as we said, we've had to observe again and again, the glory departed because they rejected God's will and finally they sent his son. God sent his son to be the glory in Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, when he arrived just south of Jerusalem in a little town called Bethlehem, about six miles away, angels heralded his arrival, and what did they sing? Glory! Glory to God in the highest! Because God had sent his Son to be the glory 
of his people, especially in Jerusalem's midst. But Jerusalem rejected the glory that had been promised in the person of Jesus Christ, and the glory departed. And he had to uh, simply depart from Jerusalem. And so for earthly Jerusalem, for this earthly city, again, this prophecy doesn't seem to be fulfilled. But God, as we observed earlier, uh, has spread his glory from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And now, really, God's people everywhere who were born again in Zion are now citizens of the new Jerusalem or the new Israel in God's world. And the source of that glory is still with us now within the church, even where two or three are gathered in his name. He promises to have his special presence. And that's why believers love the courts of the Lord. Don't have to be urged to go to church because uh, we are reminded of the glory of our Lord in the midst of that presence. So Zechariah's prophecy, if restricted just to earthly Jerusalem, the, the city there in the process, the temple first and later the city in the process of building, it seems as if this prophecy was never fulfilled. But we, if we see it in its larger light, then we know it certainly has been fulfilled. God's presence among his people still stands. And the church of Jesus Christ is the city without walls for whom God is the wall of fire around and for whom he constitutes the glory within it. And that's why the whole Bible ends with that marvelous description of the new Jerusalem in uh, Revelation 21, verses 22, 23, and 25, which describes a city with walls, but for splendor and not defense, with gates, with only one function, to stand open to receive the nations of those who are saved to enter therein. And we can be there and eternally experience what it means to have the wall of fire around and the glory of God in the midst. So that's, that's the kernel then of this vision of chapter 2. Which brings us to chapter 3. 20 minutes for chapter 3. Can we do it? Well, I was getting a little emotional over this last one. Now we have to... Another vision. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Interesting, isn't it? A court scene. Each of these visions, while the essential teaching is the same and often even repeated, aspects are constantly repeated. I'm getting the feeling like I'm repeating issues again and again. Yet the, um, the, 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 the setting that is brought before Zechariah in the vision uh, makes some dramatic change change from a city without walls, wall, rings of fire that he sees in this vision. Now he sees a court scene. And um, the angel of the Lord, and there I'd, I'd have to say it's the uh, theophany, God himself, and that's because of subsequent references later, um, is the judge. And Satan is the plaintiff the accuser. As a matter of fact, the word Satan means accuser. And uh, the Lord said to Satan, now, and Joshua, the high priest, is the defendant. Okay, so you got this court scene in your mind, huh? The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem, there you have that choice factor again, rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? 
What does that mean? Well, um, remember, <laughs> they had been enslaved in Babylon for 70 years, the people. And uh, they, they certainly didn't have power to free themselves. And so it, it is though God simply snatches them just before they are completely consumed. This little remnant. You know, and there's a prophecy in Amos uh, that says that God preserved Israel like a shepherd just barely saving a little lamb from the jaws of a lion. <laughs> that close to extinction. Of course, if they're extinguished, no salvation, no continuation of the history of redemption, no Messiah, no cross, no redemption. And so here, like a brand plucked out of the fire, of course, Joshua is the figure here. We're going to see later that the high priest represents the whole covenant community and so what is said of the high priest is by implication said of the whole covenant community. Naturally, uh, you, a, a stick taken out of the fireplace while it's already burned and full of ashes is dirty. So he's dirty. And of course, this also represents the, the unworthiness of God's people who were off there in Babylon because of their own disobedience, past disobedience, and then, of course, were heavily influenced by the paganism of, uh, of their captives. That's why so hardly any of them returned, just a small proportion returned to resettle. Dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel, the angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. The one standing before him, uh, later, we are told that there were others, not just Joshua, but there's a sort of a court full. There's a court full. And this court is filled with other priests. Only Joshua is the high priest. And so before this audience, the angel of the Lord uh, says, uh, take off those filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin. Now you know that those filthy clothes represent spiritual uh, evil, sinfulness, don't they? Un, uh, depravity. I have taken away your sin and I will put rich garments on you. And then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in my ways and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among those standing here. So the temple's going to be rebuilt, but then you need a high priest. Yom Kippur, the high priest once a year could go in the Holy of Holies, but during the rest of the year, all the priests could perform their functions in the holy place and in the outer court where the altar was where the morning and evening sacrifices were, uh, were uh, uh, carried on. So if you will walk in my ways, Joshua, then you will have a preeminent position uh, among those standing here. That's his fellow priests then. Listen, O high priest Joshua and your associates seated before you who are men symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring my servant the branch. See, the stone I have set in front of Joshua, there are seven eyes on that one stone and I will engrave an inscription on it that has reference to the breastplate that the high priest wore. And the seven eyes represent the insight, divine insight, or the blessing of the Holy Spirit upon his, his work. And I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. In that day, each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. Well, let's look at this uh, in a little greater depth now in the last 15 minutes. Uh, we observe that God is the judge in the person of the angel of the Lord. Satan is the accuser. 
Satan is always the accuser. Satan tried to prevent the rebuilding of the temple. Uh, later, he tried to prevent the rebuilding of Jerusalem. If you read uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, a great deal of uh, problems. Problems not only from the pagan tribes around, but problems from some of the Jews who had come back to settle Judea and were not participating in his reconstruction. They were off there just building their own little kingdoms, you see, of this world. And then the simple lethargy. Oh, my, uh, how, uh, uh, how Ezra talks about the people who didn't have uh, the willingness to participate. Incidentally, I think those are the three sources of, the, of, uh, uh, of conflict from the, for the church today. The enemy from without those who claim an identity with the church but literally do almost nothing. And then finally, lethargy within the church. Fortunately, the Lord always has his faithful few, and of course, uh, the, the, they are described here in our passage too. <clears throat> but Satan couldn't stop the work. The work went forward. The temple was finally built. Now what is Satan going to do? He still doesn't want it to function as the center of the worship life of the covenant community. He still doesn't want the temple to symbolize the presence of God in the midst of an obedient people. So he tries a new tact. In this vision now, in this vision, which has, of course, a spiritual reference, he accuses Joshua, the high priest, as one who is unworthy to assume the duties of the high priest. It's interesting that, uh, you know, you can have a temple... But if you don't have a high priest, nothing's going to happen there. I mean, the uh, Mosaic uh, ceremonial order required this, required ordained priests and ordained one high priest. So uh, you've got a prophet, Zechariah, he can pre proclaim God's word all he wants. You have a, a governor, uh, which we'll see tomorrow, Zerubbabel. So you've got the political order, and he's faithful to the Lord, but you still can't do anything. You've got an empty building, unserviceable. No one's worthy. He's a big sinner. He's, the filthy rags remind us of that. Uh, so that it looks like Satan has a point. Uh, after all, um, Joshua, a polluted sinner, how can he serve as God's representative among his people? Well, you know why he can. Because God has a response to Satan's accusations. In verse 2 it says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. I have chosen Jerusalem, and I have chosen Joshua. Later in verse 3, uh, rebuke you, is not this man? He chose Jerusalem, and is not this man a burning stick snatched out of the fire? I chose him. And then uh, it, the passage goes on to say how God will qualify him for his work. That is, God is going to uh, cleanse him Joshua of his sin. He'll make him holy. He knows, God realizes that, that uh, he is sinful. But I am God and I will choose whom I will. Now take the filthy clothes off and I'm going to dress him in the robes of the high priest. And I'm going to put uh, what is called here a turban on his head. The King James says a mitre on his head. And that simply is sort of the, the headpiece that identified the high priest. And it's something like Catholic bishops wear. <laughs> but we don't need priests anymore, and therefore we don't need high priests, we don't need bishops anymore. And that's why uh, in Protestantism we don't have these anymore. And, of course, this passage will remind us why. Uh, and if not this one, some later ones will too. The, but the priest, that, that the priesthood factor has been discontinued, except that its role is is somewhat continued among the deacons. And on the front of that turban, on the front of that headpiece, it said, Holy unto the Lord. So this sinful man, this unworthy, depraved man, will wear robes of purity and a headpiece that says he has, is holy unto the Lord. Now we have a problem. How can God, who is righteous and holy, arbitrarily declare that someone is 
his sins are removed as though God says, oh, forget about that. As, go, although God, as though God is, as he is projected to be, the, this, this kind, uh, compassionate, uh, heavenly daddy who just overlooks evil and therefore you don't have to worry about anything in, in, before God. I mean, God loves so much that he couldn't possibly send anybody to hell. You, you know what, that kind of spirit that, that is so devastating because it, it fails to make people aware of their need for repentance and then there is no salvation. So that, that, is that the kind of God we have? How can God cleanse Joshua of sin and make him holy? Well, he can because of what we read a little later. Verse 6, this is what the Lord Almighty says. If you walk in my ways, I will give you charge of my courts. I will give you a place. Listen, O high priest Joshua, verse 8, and your associates, the other priests sitting before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring my servant the branch. Well, the branch, that's how the Messiah is identified way back in Genesis already. The branch or stem of Jesse and David, the branch of Jeremiah, and now the branch. It's because of the coming branch Messiah 500 or more years later that God can declare Joshua already before, only one way of salvation, you know. Don't see the, this uh, attempt to try to, to pattern the history of redemption that I've tried to present to you as similar to dispensationalism, which chops up the Bible into self-contained periods and says people are saved in different ways. And now we're saved by grace, but people were saved by law and uh, by innocence and all of this in the previous... No, not at all. Only one way of salvation anticipating the promise of God's Savior in the Old Covenant or looking back to the fulfillment of that Savior in the New Covenant, Jesus Christ. It's because God is going to send his servant the branch that he can declare Joshua holy and therefore the service of the Lord, the ceremonial service of the temple can be restored. God does have a worthy representative. And that is emphasized a little bit more when we read, I'm going to bring my servant to branch. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone and I will engrave an inscription on it. I've said in passing uh, that that has reference to uh, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, the seven eyes of the Lord. It's repeated again in Revelation. And I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. <laughs> and that day was Friday. The Friday that Jesus was crucified. In a single day, I will remove the sin of this land and the sin of Joshua and the other priests that attend him, that, that, that attend the, the uh, temple service because my servant, the branch, will come. And then... Each one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree. That has all, that's always a symbol in the Old Testament for a condition of peace and reconciliation with God. So that's, that's the message of this, uh, of this vision. And it refers not just to Joshua and the priests, but it refers to the whole covenant community because the high priest represented. It was a time of representationalism in the Old Covenant represented the whole, all the people. That's why in Yom Kippur, the elders of the people had to come and confess the sins of the whole covenant community to the high priest. And the high priest would take those confessed sins as part of the ceremony of Yom, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and ceremonially place them on the head of the goat called the scapegoat. And the goat was led away into the wilderness to die which is also symbolic of our Lord Jesus who is led away as the scapegoat out of the city to Calvary, bearing the sins of all those who would trust in him, the scapegoat, the perfect uh, sacrifice and substitute for the sins of the world. 
So it included redemption for the whole faithful covenant community, which means, of course, it, re- it, it includes us. It includes us. Because we stand like Joshua and the covenant community of that day, unworthy before the Lord, and Satan still accuses us today. He said, you mean to tell me those people are Christians? I mean, look at, look at what they do. They're jealous, and, and they're antagonistic, and they're greedy, and they're proud, and, and they, each group wants its own interpretation of a special nature of doctrine to be pressed on the whole the, the whole believing community and the others work against them. You mean to tell me those are your, your people, Lord? And the Lord says, yes, I chose them and I removed the sin of my people one great day. There's a little poem that I learned a long time ago and it just never seems to dislodge from my soul. And I want to uh, repeat it to you. It's anonymous. Uh, probably the author that's written more than any other author is named Anonymous. Yeah. Pardon? A. Nanimous. Okay. But it must have been inspired by Zechariah chapter 3. And it goes like this I sinned, and straightway, post haste, Satan flew before the throne of God and brought a railing accusation there. He said, This soul, this thing of clay and sod, has sinned, and I demand his penalty. Hast thou not said, The soul that sinneth it must die? Is justice dead? And so he did accuse me, day and night, through and through, And every word that Satan said was true. Then Christ rose up from God's right hand, before whose glory angels veiled their eyes. He spoke. Each jot and tittle of the law must be fulfilled. The guilty one must die. But wait. Suppose I were to take his place and I would pay his penalty. I died that he might spotless be presented before the throne of God. And Satan fled away. Full well he knew that every word my dear Lord spoke was true. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We feel unqualified and unable to express its richness fully. But you've told us to be patient. And that there would be a day when we shall know as we are known face to face. When we shall forever be grateful, everlastingly praising you for the truth of your redeeming grace in Christ. We thank you for those faithful few who kept the flame of the truth alive in Zechariah's day. And we thank you for those through whom the promise of the Savior was fulfilled. And we pray that future generations may thank us because we were faithfully in our time, in our age of responsibility, for your everlasting glory. Be for all of us a ring of fire round about us and the glory within us until we stand spotless before your throne because of what you've done through your Son, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.
tonight is our final night together. Um, boy, that sounds sad. Uh, and uh, we have many things to do tonight. Uh, awards for the sports programs, we have some special music. Uh, somebody might, might speak too. Uh, but uh, please be here on time, if not a little early. And please expect to stay a little late. Well, someone has a picture of the eclipse already from today and uh, we'll leave it up here and you can look at this remarkable thank you yeah and the other side is just the peepholes